Good morning. It is good to be here on this Lord's Day with you all, and I look forward to enjoying some time in Matthew 25 this morning with you. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Matthew 25. Last time we were in this passage, um, I had the privilege of preaching on the parable of the fig tree, and I asked the question, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And we looked at, as we walked through this passage, in this parable of the fig tree in Matthew 24, we walked through it and we wanted to make sure that we were staying alert for the signs of Christ's return. Today, I want to ask a different question. The question I want to ask today is, how are you waiting and working until the return of Christ? How are you waiting and working until the return of Christ? If you pay any attention to the news at all, and you listen maybe to Al Mohler's blog or listen to his podcast, um, you would know that the world that we live in is a very messy place. It is crazy, it is wicked, it is evil, and it just seems to be getting worse. It is very difficult sometimes to patiently wait for the Lord to return, knowing that things here are only going to get worse. They're only going to get worse. I talk to people at work all the time, and and we talk about these current events. We talk about the political spectrum. We talk about all these things that are happening. And it's, it's a sense of utter hopelessness and helplessness. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. They don't know how to vote. And yet we have a God who is in total control, And he's sending his son back. We just have to wait. Well, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? As we watch and wait for Christ's return, what are we supposed to do? I'd like to return to this passage, this Olivet Discourse, because I think that Jesus answers that question here in Matthew 25. We're going to look at two more parables today. Yes, two parables. And they're rather long. And I promise to be done in 42 minutes and 54 seconds, okay? Because this passage, I think, has been more abused than almost any other passage in Scripture. I want to keep it simple. I'm not trying to look for hidden meanings. I'm not going to make this an allegorical discourse on the meaning of the oil in the lamp or the, the number of talents, and why the talents, and what, we're going to keep it simple. I want to make sure that we don't abuse this passage, because this is so important for us to see what the disciples saw, and hear what the disciples heard as Jesus was telling them to wait. As Matthew's gospel is arranged, he arranges things, the various events of Jesus' life, around four or five major discourses. The first one is obviously the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. Great passage on what does it mean to enter the kingdom? What does a kingdom citizen look like? He then gives an extended commission to the 12 in Matthew 10. He relates a lengthy series of kingdom parables in chapter 13, and then gives a protracted lesson on childlike faith in chapter 18 before finishing with the Sermon on the Mount of Olives, or the Olivet Discourse, here in Matthew 24 and 25. Jesus is talking privately to the 12 at this point, 
And he's answering their question about the signs of his coming. You can see that back in Matthew 24, verse 3. They were asking him to just please tell us when these things are going to happen. What are the signs? On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave one parable at the very end of that sermon. The parable of the wise and the foolish builders. As he begins his public ministry with the Sermon on the Mount, he ends his ministry privately with the Twelve with the Sermon on the Mount of Olives. And in this two chapters, he presents seven parables. The carcass and the vultures in 2428, the parable of the fig tree that we looked at several weeks back on 24 verses 32 to 34, the parable of the master of the house, the wise and evil servants, and then the two parables that we're going to look at today, the wise and foolish bridemaids, and then the parable of the talents, and lastly, the parable of the sheep and the goats. The previous message that I had the privilege to preach from Matthew 24 asked the question, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Today, I want to look at these two parables and ask or answer, I should say, look at these incredible word pictures that answer the questions that the disciples were asking. When are you coming back and what are we supposed to do in the meantime? You know what the interesting thing about that is? Jesus never answers those questions. Jesus doesn't answer specifically those two questions in these two parables. The disciples ask the questions, and then he gives parables to answer all of their questions. However, in these parables, he gives clear instruction about what we are to do. So today, I want to ask two questions. How are we to wait And what are we supposed to do while we wait? Those are the two questions I want to ask today. How are we to wait? And what are we supposed to do while we wait? Especially in light of being ready for the imminent return of Christ. So let's look at Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No. There will not be enough for us and you too. Instead, go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in to him, with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. 
The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would open up the eyes of our heart, that we might understand exactly what you are saying to your 12 disciples through these parables, so that we might understand and seeing and hearing that we would believe and trust and know that you are coming back for us. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. So these two parables would be grouped in a classification of parables called kingdom parables. Matthew has a bunch of them. He has the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl that Patrick has preached on. The parable of the dragnet, the unforgiving servant, workers in the vineyard, and the wedding banquet. I think one of the most important questions that we can ask when we come to these kingdom parables is, who was the target audience, and how would they have understood it? Because if we're going to foist an interpretation on the parable, we're not truly understanding what Jesus was saying. We can't force an understanding that isn't there. So, let's look at this first parable to answer the question, how are we supposed to wait? Answer, we need to wait patiently. This parable of the ten virgins answers that question and gives the instruction that we are to wait patiently. And along with that, you could even say wait expectantly and patiently. Do them both. This is a parable from society And it's found only here in Matthew. It's not found in Mark or Luke. And it's very unique to Matthew. But if we're going to understand this parable of the ten virgins, we need to understand something about first century marriage rituals. Now, being a father of daughters, I was very interested in this as I was reading and studying and kind of gathering uh, some information on first century marriage. It's very interesting because in first century Judaism, there were three stages of marriage. Or three phases, if you will. The first phase is the promise of marriage. This is usually formalized by a contract made between the two sets of parents. So the parents get together, they hammer out a deal, 
they seal the, the, the contract with a payment made by the bridegroom's father to the father of the bride. I wish we could bring that back. That would just be really cool. I like it. That's what they did then. We don't do that now. But we need to understand that. Then the second phase, or the second stage, is the betrothal. This began with a public exchange of vows and gifts between the couple that resulted in the legal commitment to marry one another. The union could not be severed except by divorce, but the marriage was not fully consummated until after phase three. Remember, this is where Joseph and Mary were at when Mary became pregnant. They were in this betrothal phase. Well, then you have phase three, and that is the wedding feast, and that's what we're reading about right here. The wedding feast may happen as late as one year after the betrothal period, and this is marked by the completion of the betrothal period with a huge celebration, often lasting several days, and only after the wedding banquet did the couple finally live together. Remember, this is where Jesus performs his first miracle in Cana, was at the wedding feast. So this is the third phase of first century Jewish customary weddings. And this is the phase that we're in right here in Matthew 25. So let's look closely at this text to understand what's happening here. He gives, the first thing is a comparison. Look at this comparison in verse 25, and I'm sorry, chapter 25, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. It's interesting. Why ten virgins? What do they represent? I can't tell you how many commentaries I read that wanted to go into the minutiae of details over what this word means and why we need to understand it this way and what that represents and how the kingdom is represented by these ten virgins. Guess what? They're just ten teenage girls that help the bride get ready. This is part of the custom. Jesus is giving a very simple story so that the the disciples would understand it. They went to this wedding at Canaan. They understood what was happening. They've been to other weddings. These ten teenage girls would help the bride get prepared for the wedding. And what they would then do is take the bride on a processional down the streets through the city with lit torches to the bridegroom's house, where the wedding ceremony was going to be prepared. These girls were very likely busy in the process of adorning the bride in her dress, caring for last-minute preparations, running around frantically so that the bride didn't have to deal with all that stuff. These bridegrooms took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom, these, these bridesmaids. They were looking to take the bride to the home of the bridegroom or his parents where the wedding would be held. Well, next we see in verse, verses 2 through 4, a contrast. The kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins, but, verse, 25, or verse 2 in chapter 25, five of them were foolish and five were prudent. There's a contrast here. Jesus is setting up five were ready for any and every expectation. These were like the Girl Scouts of bridesmaids. They were the friend mom. You know, they had everything necessary for any and any, any and every contingency. They were ready. The other five, 
not so much. These are the five that think that they're going to hike Mount Whitney with a cup of water in their hand and not get thirsty on the way up. Not so smart. The normal start time for a wedding feast would be after sunset. So artificial light or illumination was required because they didn't have electricity back then. You couldn't just flip the light switch on. So they needed lamps. Verses 3 and 4, For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now, these are not little lamps that you would light, that you would kind of see in pictures of the Holy Land, that would have a basin of oil and a long stem, and and the oil would come up, and, and you'd have this little flame, this little tiny flicker of flame. That's not what we're talking about here. Unfortunately, the word in our English that we translate, uh, lamp, the word in the Greek, really ought to reflect the idea of a torch. It's a long pole with rags wrapped around the end of the pole, soaked in oil, so that they could be lit and blaze with light. And these things, as long as they were soaked in oil and the oil was burning, they would last about 15 to 20 minutes. But if there was a delay and they had to wait, and they needed to get that light going again, they would have to add oil to the light to get it re-soaked so that it would keep burning. Well, five of these bridesmaids realized they probably are experienced bridesmaids. They've probably been to a few weddings, or five. And they understand that there could be a delay. So they were ready. The other five, they're new. They're brand new. They're fresh. They're young. They're foolish. They're not ready. The five foolish bridesmaids arrived at the bride's house completely unprepared for what was about to occur. And they were unaware of their negligence because they would not need their torches until the procession started. Well, next we see the context. The context in verse 5. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. The context is, here is that there was a delay. Why? why? Why was the bridegroom delayed? This is like the best day of his life. He's getting married. Why would he delay? Guess what? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. And we can't foist meaning onto this text. We can't force an interpretation. All we know is that there was a delay. There could have been lots of reasons for a delay. It could have been that he fell asleep while he was getting ready himself because he had a long day out in the field in the vineyard and he was tired. He fell asleep. Could have been that his parents decided, you know what? This camel over here, he, he turned up lame. I think I want another camel. And uh, bride parents, you're going to have to provide another camel. Uh, we can't provide a camel, but we can give you a donkey. Uh, that's not good enough. And there could have been a bickering going on. We don't know. All we know is that the bridegroom was delayed. Can you imagine how the bride is feeling during this time? She is eagerly, anxiously anticipating her wedding night, and it's not happening. It's not happening. Everything had to be in full agreement before the wedding could begin. So whatever was going on in the background, the bridegroom could not go to his bride until the bride price was paid, and the marriage contract was signed, sealed, and delivered. Meanwhile, all the bridesmaids 
the foolish and the wise were getting drowsy and ultimately fell asleep. There's nothing wrong with falling asleep at 1130 at night after a huge day working. You get tired and you're just done with everything. You now sit down and you're talking and you're relaxing and it gets later and later and later. And you say, you know, I'm just going to close my eyes and relax. And next thing you know, you're asleep. There's no condemnation here. There's nothing evil going on. There's nothing sinful in falling asleep. They just fell asleep. But suddenly, there came a call. We see the comparison of the kingdom to these ten bridesmaids. The contrast between five foolish and five wise. We see the context that it was late at night that they were busy, they were waiting, they were waiting, they were waiting, and they fell asleep. And now there is a call. Here he is. Come and meet him. Verses 6 and 7. At midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Can you imagine how they startled awake? What? What? Wait, what? What's going on? Oh, oh we got to get ready. we got to go. All of a sudden... The bridesmaids were able to awake. They lit their torches. They added oil so they can illuminate the processional and then also potentially perform some traditional torchlight dances once they arrived at their destination. Those that planned and prepared for this contingency, they were ready to go. The others, not so much. They realized that they got their tor- as they got their torches ready, that they were not going to have enough oil to do everything they needed to do. This led to a conversation. A comparison, a contrast, the context, a call, and now a conversation. Verses 8 and 9. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No. No. There's nothing wrong with saying no. As Tim Hawkins says, he likes to give the gift of no to his kids all the time. There's nothing wrong with saying no. They said no. There will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Now remember, this is midnight. This is in the middle of the night. I think the oil dealers were closed for the evening. Apparently, they had to go find someone, knock on doors, frantically rush around, find somebody who was at least willing to reopen up their shop so that they could buy some more oil. These five rush out, realizing they're not going to be able to do their job if they don't get this oil. They go out, they leave the bridal party to do exactly that. What were they doing immediately before this conversation? Sleeping. What could they have been doing? Checking their preparations, making sure everything was ready. Failing to plan is planning to fail. And that is exactly what happened here. There are always consequences for failing to plan. And that's what we see next, the consequences, verses 10 to 12. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. So, what happens next? 
These foolish, unprepared bridesmaids had to leave the bride to wake up the oil merchants, buy more oil, while the prudent bridesmaids were ready and patiently waiting. Yes, they fell asleep also, but they had already prepared. They were ready and waiting for the professional to start. They were able to make their way to the bridegroom's house for the wedding feast with their torches lighting the way. Once they got to the house, the door was shut, and nobody was allowed to come in after the door was shut. Even those other five bridesmaids who were part of the original bridal party, who were friends of the bride, once they left, they were forever excluded from the wedding feast. They were forever excluded from entering. Jesus then presents a command. What's the command? Verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Be ready. Patiently wait. Wisdom leads to faithfulness. Obedience to the commands of God leads to readiness. The wise who are constantly seeking to do the will of God are the ones who fervently pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. The foolish ones seem to pay no attention to the imminent return of the Lord. How foolish can you be? He is coming back. The bridal party started with ten, but ended with five. And it's very reminiscent to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, Jesus gives, at the very end, a parable. But immediately before that parable, he says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Not, oh yeah, I forgot about you. No, I never knew you. You were never a part of me. You left. And in leaving, you proved that you were never a part of me. In Luke 6, verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Calling Jesus Lord implies that you are going to obey him as Lord. Luke 13, verses 23 to 28, Jesus says, And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are being thrown out. The bridegroom is coming. Jesus is coming. 
We must be prepared regardless and patiently wait for his arrival. Paul encourages us to wait patiently in Romans 13, verse 11. He says, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Or Peter, in 1 Peter 4, having heard this parable, he was able to write this. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And again, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, he says this. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Wait patiently. Wait expectantly. Be ready. Look for the signs so that you can enter into the bridal party and into the wedding feast. There's at least four lessons that we need to see. Four lessons. Number one, the coming of the Lord may be delayed. The coming of the Lord may be delayed. It's already been delayed 1,986 years. It may be delayed a few more. Number two, the Lord will come without warning. Peter tells us in Second Peter that he's coming like a thief. Jesus himself in Matthew 24 verse 44 says, For this reason you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. He's coming at a time when you have no idea. There's no point in trying to nail down the day or the date or the time because you're not going to know. Scripture clearly tells us you're not going to know. I'm not going to know. We are not going to know. Be ready. Third lesson, being prepared is not transferable. There were five that were prepared. There were five that were unprepared. The five unprepared begged the five, help us, help us, help us. Guess what? They can't. You cannot, cannot get into the kingdom on the coattails of the faith of your fathers. You cannot get into the kingdom on someone else's faith. Your pastor, your neighbor, your friend, your great aunt. It doesn't work that way. It must be your faith. And lastly, the fourth lesson. Lost opportunities cannot be regained. Lost opportunities cannot be regained. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Quoting Old Testament passage. This is God. And he says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Beloved, God made a way for us to know him. When he originally created us, he created us to be relational people, relational people with him. In the garden, Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship. Unfortunately, because of Adam's sin, he plunged all of mankind into a situation that they were not able to reconcile with God. 
And that required a reconciler, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the one who bridged that gap between God and man so that we could be reconciled to God. He died on that cross, was buried, rose again on the third day, and ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God forever interceding for his people. That is what we believe. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are not reconciled to God. You are still under his wrath, under his condemnation, and you will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You must repent and come back to God to be reconciled. And guess what? He will forgive. We have a God who gives us forgiveness. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Why? Because God made Jesus. God made him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What have I, what have I, com, what have I contributed to my salvation? Only the sin that made it necessary. God did everything else. Jesus took, God took my sin, placed it on Jesus, took Jesus' righteousness, placed it on me at the cross. And I trust in Christ alone for my salvation. If you have not done that today, please do that. Charles Spurgeon wrote regarding this parable, a great change has to be wrought in you far beyond any power of yours to accomplish ere you can go in with Christ to the marriage. You must first of all be renewed in your nature or you will not be ready. You must be washed from your sins or you will not be ready. You must be justified in Christ's righteousness or you, and you must put on his wedding dress or you will not be ready. You must be reconciled to God. You must be made like to God or you will not be ready. Or, to come to the parable before us, you must have a lamp. And that lamp must be fed with heavenly oil, and it must continue to burn brightly, or else you will not be ready. No child of darkness can go into the place of light. You must be brought out of nature's darkness into God's marvelous light, or else you will never be ready to go in with Christ to the marriage and to be forever with him. Beloved, get ready, because he's coming. Next, Jesus transitions to making sure that they know what to do in the meantime. While they are patiently waiting, what are they supposed to do? The obvious answer is, don't fall asleep. But if you're not going to fall asleep, what do you need to do? What are we supposed to do while we wait? That's the question I want to answer. What are we supposed to do? The answer to this question is, number two, work diligently. Work diligently. And that's where Jesus goes with this second parable. For he just transitions right in, right at the heels of the parable of the ten virgins. He transitions and segues right into this next parable. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. There is a similar parable in Luke 19, verses 12 to 27. But it's different. This is the longest parable in Matthew's gospel, the parable of the talents. Luke has a very similar parable in Luke 19, but the setting, the details, the context, everything is completely different. So it's not the same parable. 
However, there is benefit in a repetition of ideas as you teach. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Both parables, the one in Luke 19 and this one here in Matthew 25, gently correct the expectation of the disciples who thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And we get that from Luke 19.11. This parable, guess what, has the exact same flow as the previous parable. He starts out with a comparison. Starts out with a comparison. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. The kingdom of God is compared to a man who is about to entrust his entire estate, his entire fortune, to his slaves and then go on a journey. Really? Okay, let's, let's, let's unpack this. What does this mean? Well, now we see the contrast. He divides his wealth based upon ability and then leaves. Look at verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. It's as if he called his three slaves and said, okay, here you go. You get this, you get this, you get this. All right, see you guys. And he just goes. He doesn't give them any instructions. He doesn't tell them what to do. But intuitively, he knew based on their ability what he could expect in return when he came back. Now, a talent, when we talk about talent in 21st century America, we're talking about a a natural ability, the ability to speak well, the ability to play a musical instrument, the ability to jump really far, run really fast, uh, balance really well, whatever it is. That's not what this is talking about here. A talent here is a sum of money. Well, how much money? Well, one talent is worth roughly about 15 to 20 years wages. Okay, so let's do some math. Where's Michelle? She's not here. Okay, let's do some. Oh, but Danny's here, so Danny can do the math for us, right? All right. Average annual salary in the United States in 2014 was $53,657. Multiply that by 15, you come up with the number of $804,855. That's a lot of money. You multiply that times uh, his total wealth, his eight talents, you get $6,438,840. Wow. First century money. Okay, that's first century Israel money. You multiply that times inflation today, it's got to be in the billions. I can't do that kind of math. So the guy that gets five talents gets over $4 million. The guy that gets two talents gets $1.6 million. And the guy that gets one talent gets $800,000. What do you do with this money? Guess what? The context of verses 15b to 18 tells us. Slave number one, as this man is on his journey, doubles the five talents to end with ten talents. You do the math. I don't know. Four million, eight million dollars? That's a lot of money. Slave number two doubles the 1.6 million to 3.2 million. Slave number three, he got a rock. And he put a rock over the top of the hole to bury the talent. He did nothing. Clearly the master knew what he was doing in distributing the talents. Could you imagine if slave number three had gotten the five talents? Wow, what a disappointment. Just like in the previous parable, then there's a comparison, there's contrast, there's context, and now there's a call. What's the call here? Verse 19, I'm home. The master returns. He comes back, 
and he says, settle your accounts with me. Tell me what you did with what I gave you. And this was no short trip. Verse 19 tells us, after a long time. Remember, this is first century ancient Near East. They didn't have jet planes. They didn't have automobiles, planes, trains, and automobiles. They had camels and donkeys. And that's about it. Maybe, maybe a horse here and there. So there were any number of things that could have delayed his return. But regardless, he was gone for a long time. He then has a conversation with his slaves. This conversation is recorded for us in verses 20 to 25. The, man, the, the master wants them to answer the question, what did you do with what I gave you? He didn't ask it, but it's definitely implied. Slave number one, you gave me five, I gave you five more. You know what? I just want you to know that I love you, I served you, and here's your five talents, and here's the five others that I gave you. Slave number two, you gave me two, I earned two more. Same thing as slave one. I just want you to know I love you, I served you, I worked for you, and here's the four talents now. Back, they're yours. Slave number three, dude, you gave me one talent. Really? Really? You know what? Because you gave me one talent, I just buried it in the ground and put a rock on it. Here, you can have it back. That's it. Slave number three tries to vindicate himself to justify his decision by giving a little speech. Remember slave number one and slave number two? All they said is, Lord, you gave me five, I'm giving you five, and I'm giving you five more. That's it. They didn't justify themselves. They didn't vindicate. They didn't praise themselves. They didn't float their own boat. They didn't, you know, want all of the accolades. It was just a matter of fact. Because I love you. Here it is. Slave number three, you know what? I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid. Went away and hid your talent. You have what is yours. I'm done with it. This slave failed to understand the goodness of the master, but viewed him in light of his own envious and selfish nature. This slave felt slighted, yet in his own words, he said that he was afraid to put the money to work. This slave had not profitably used the talent, yet he seemed, after giving it back to the master, to wait for some word of commendation for merely keeping it safe. This slave wanted to get the message across that he had not lost any of the master's money. He explicitly says that the talent belonged to the master. He kept it safe. Here is what is yours. The other slaves, in giving the master the extra talents, didn't draw attention to the fact that they got the extra talent. He just said, you gave me five. I earned five. It's all yours. Well, guess what? Just like in the previous parable, There are consequences. There are consequences for our actions. And we see those consequences in verses 21, 23, and then verses 26 to 29. There are four positive consequences and four negative consequences. And I just want to go through these quickly. Four positive consequences. Number one, praise. Well done. You see that, verse 21. Well done. You see that again in verse 23. Well done. You did exactly what I wanted you to do. It's as if you read my mind. Well done. Number two, they were commended. 
good and faithful slave. Good and faithful. They were highly esteemed by the master at this point. Number three, they were awarded. There was awards. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Responsibility was given, and they were placed in charge of much. And number four, along with praise, commendation, and award, there was elevation. Come and sit at my table. Enter into the joy of your master. You were basically now given equal status with the master. Well, there are also four negative consequences. Write down a couple of verses, though, for four positive consequences you can look up. Luke 12, verses 35 to 37, and then verse 44, and then John 12, 26. Confidence is placed in that type of a slave. Confidence is placed in that type of a slave. There are positive consequences for working well and working hard for the master. Well, there are also four negative consequences. Four negative consequences for being lazy for being afraid to work, for being afraid to do anything. And we see them in verses 26 through 30. Number one is there are no words of praise. There's nothing, nothing. Can you imagine the look, the stare that the master is giving to this slave as he's just saying, here it is. You get what you, 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 get, you get it back. Can you imagine the master looking at this slave, what he must have looked like? The anger that probably showed on his face. There was no words of praise, nothing. And as a matter of fact, number two, he was, he was condemned. He was condemned. Number, verse 26, you wicked and lazy slave. You wicked and lazy slave. Com, condemnation. He was condemned for his inactivity. Number three, negative consequence, he was chided for his indolence and faithlessness. You ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have at least received my money back with interest. You could have done something with it. And then number four, and I think this is the worst consequence, he was permanently removed from the master's presence. Verse 30, throw out the worthless slave, into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. The last slave was judged by the words from his own mouth. Paul writes in Second Corinthians 5.10, he says, We all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. According to what he has done, whether good or bad, we will be judged. We will. Either a judgment of commendation, well done, good and faithful slave, or condemnation, you foolish, foolish, lazy slave. Even what he had was taken. For the one talent, he was left penniless and he was left homeless because he was worthless to his master. Verses 28 and 29. 
reflect that reality. The command is sobering in verse 30. The command is sobering. Nobody wants to hear those words. The two faithful slaves served well because they loved the master and wanted to please him, while the wicked slave failed to serve well because he actually hated and resented the master. They all served in the same household. I can't help but even just thinking about what we talked about in Family Bible Hour. What did Judas hear when he heard this parable? How did Judas interpret this? I, I, I just I can't help but think about that. There is no such thing, beloved. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. You can't. You can't do it. Matthew 12, verse 30. Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. You may look like a Christian, walk like a Christian, talk like a Christian, eat like a Christian, act like a Christian, but if you don't love the Master, if you don't eagerly anticipate, if you don't have a real expectation for Christ's return, if you're not eager to see Him and you have no love for His appearing, you are not a Christian. You can say all the right things and appear to do all the right things, but the condition of your heart exposes you for what you really are. Beloved, if you do not know the Lord that way, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I, I implore you, know God. Know Christ as your Savior and Lord. Be expectantly and patiently waiting while diligently working for the return of Christ. Paul encourages Titus. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Do you look for Christ? And lastly, in Mark, Mark 13, verses 35 to 37, he says, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each of one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or in the, when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Will you resolve yourself to live in light of eternity and be ready when Christ returns? I hope so. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, get to know him. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to hear these two parables. And Lord, we look forward to continuing to worship you this morning through song, through prayer, through fellowship. As we leave this place, thinking about all of these things that you've commanded for us to do, help us to live for you, to expectantly and patiently wait and diligently work as we wait for the return of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord.